Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Listen to this. Tony Bellingham's story is one that will make your jaw quite literally drop. The gifted craftsman is one of the few master goldsmiths in the UK. His work, including sculpting gold and silver, carving precious stones and diamond mountings. His works of art have been much sought after by royalty and heads of state. For a man of such skill, his hands are invaluable tools, obviously. But during a slow period of recovery from contracting TB, he was rushed to hospital in 2014. What was to happen next was quite literally devastating. He was misdiagnosed with cardiac arrest, unnecessarily operated on, and the operation itself left him unable to use his right arm and hand as well with damaged nerves, leaving him facing a lifetime of extreme pain. Faced with the prospect of endless pain and no longer able to fulfil his passion for creating works of art, he could easily have been condemned to a life of misery and self-pity, but he has instead shown incredible strength and determination and has slowly but surely taught himself to use his arm and hand to work once again. Wow, what a story. I'm not sure what to say. I'm very humbled, very proud and very pleased to, uh, through the work of uh, our lovely friend, KBA Melanie, to get the rather supremely talented, and I'm sitting looking at, well, we'll describe it in a moment, a quite incredible work of art, uh, Tony Bellingham and Matthew, his son, because we're going to talk about the father-son relationship in due course. So welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Thank you very much. I, this is the first time I have never thought about some questions because the story is so incredible. I'm not sure I'm going to get to ask any of them. So let's start, if we may, right at the beginning. So tell us about your formative years before what happened in 2014 happened. Okay, so uh, when I was young, I I wanted to be uh, a goldsmith, uh, sculptor, really. Um, I went to uh, what was then the Sir John Cass College of Art, which is now part of um, London University. And uh, I did what was then called a pre-apprenticeship course, which was uh, lasted a year. Uh, I then managed to get an apprenticeship with Aspreys in Bond Street and spent the next eight years at Aspreys learning my craft uh, as an old-fashioned apprentice day-to-day. It's amazing. And then 2014, TB, what, what, what on earth happened there? Well, I, I, in my career, I've I've learned how to carve and sculpt in hard stones. So anything from um, rock crystal through to sapphire, ruby, um, m- most precious stones, lapis lazuli, all kinds of precious stones. And w- when you want to carve, um, especially animals or larger pieces of stone, you know there, there there aren't any lapis or emerald mines in Surrey, so. You, you kind of have to travel around the world. I knew that. <laughs> yeah. There's, you have to travel around the world um, to mines or the origin of places, especially for the larger pieces of stone. Mm. Um, there's a, a, a trade in cut stone in, in London, in Hatton Garden, in Birmingham, et cetera, et cetera. But when you want to 
want to make um, large carvings, then you have to select and source the materials as close to the mine as possible. One, you're getting the material a lot cheaper and two, you've got a lot more choice of pieces and, and especially if you have a specific commission of an animal or a, whatever you're making, then the only way is to be able to get as close to the source of the material as possible. Mm. So uh, I traveled um, pretty well all over the world buying pieces of uh, rough stone ready to be carved or made into objects of art. Wow. And and then, so how did the, what happened? Obviously, was it the, was it the breathing of, of stone dust? What, I mean, how did, how did the TB come about? What, you know, what happened? Yeah, there's... Uh, Mines, by the, by the very nature of the material, those mines are in third world countries. Mm. So the, the, unlike mines in the West where they're air conditioned and there's safety equipment, et cetera, et cetera, very often a, a mine for precious materials will be not much more than a hole in the ground. Right. Um, and the people working there and the conditions are extremely poor. So it's simply the way the system tends to work in third mm. world countries. So the people working in the mines are some of the lowest paid in the world and, and the, the worst treated. So when they're living in those environments, diseases like um, tuberculosis mm. become, uh, uh, it becomes a hot house mm. breeding for them. So you don't know that you're going to go and get tuberculosis but you'll go to a mine to look at a specific stone or, yeah. or whatever you're looking for and you simply catch it from the environment those environments inside a mine inside the earth is is usually quite hot it's humid um so therefore it's a perfect breeding ground for bacteria so simply when you're going in and out of a native mine as opposed to a western run safety equipped mine mm. You know, you are literally walking into air that is probably not been circulated more than once or twice in a day at the very best. So whatever diseases are are airborne and the mine workers have, you stand mm. an equal chance of catching it. I say this very analytically at the moment. I didn't realise it until I'd caught tuberculosis yeah. but that's effectively and, it, and it's interesting tony because um i'm very grateful to you uh, to you for being a podcast guest but we're not here to talk about tuberculosis that no, would absolutely. be enough for most people you know the yeah. the physical and emotional um stresses and strains that have you that's a story in itself but it's not that, that pretty tough but i'm, sh I'm absolutely I, sure and i, I don't dismiss that, that. Okay. Yeah. yeah i'm not not dismissing that for one second so you get rushed to hospital but that's when the problems start effectively yeah it, it basically what had happened is i'd, I'd done um i was recovering from the tuberculosis and getting ready to um, get myself back to work and i was training um my eldest and youngest son um who are boxers uh, my eldest son's a professional fighter um and I, I i was quite an old father so an old dad was trying to keep up with a couple of very young guys and overdid it a little bit um, that evening I thought uh, I had all of the characteristic pains of a heart attack in my chest, um, jaw, neck, the whole thing. And um, 
I just sat there and thought, well, I'm 57 and, and you know, it's, I'm probably in the zone. So it's probably a heart attack. Called the paramedics who took me to the local hospital. They said I'd had a serious heart attack and needed to have um, more in-depth treatment. So they put me in an ambulance with um, flashing lights and horns blaring and, and rushed me to um, King's College Hospital. Um, when I reached King's College Hospital, they told me I'd had a serious heart attack um, and said, you know, we've got to put stents in your heart. So for anybody who hasn't had stents, and I hope none of you have, but if if you haven't, it, it sounds like a surgical procedure in, in the respect of when you're told you've got to have a stent, you imagine them cutting your chest open and things like that, but they don't. It's it's all carried out through um, an angiogram put into your um, arterial system mm. and threaded up to your heart. So they rushed me straight into an angiogram suite, with, uh, an operating theatre, if you will, and... Um, proceeded to start the angiogram, except that when they inserted the catheter, it had ruptured my radial artery and radial nerve. Um, so yeah, then they they kept going through the plane. I was trying to sit up on the, the operating table. The pain was immense. Um, and once they'd got the angiogram to my heart, they realised that um, everyone had made a mistake and I didn't have heart attack at all. I ha actually had something that's been described in various ways to me, but the easiest way to uh, explain it um, to someone who's non-medical is I got cramp in my heart effectively from mm -hmm. over-exercising. Um, so they withdrew the uh, angiogram catheter not, catheter, not having to do any work at all. Um, but the resulting pain and damage in my wrist was was something that then became very, very serious. This, uh, so when they'd withdrawn the um, angiogram catheter, um, I realised something was terribly wrong. Um, but the uh, registrar, he, and I saw it in his eyes, he knew something had gone wrong. He knew he'd done something wrong. Um, they put on what's called a transradial um, tourniquet band on my wrist. But they did it up very, very, very tight. So he, I, I believe he understood and thought that the band would stop the, the rupture, as it were. Um, and then for the next three and a half hours, it, 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 the pain became progressively worse and my arm swelled up to approximately two and a half times its size, basically, and turned a... Uh, uh, a uh, horrible shade of bluey purple white really mottled effect but my arm got very very hard it's um and this is a, a description at the time I'd, I'd never heard of but it is quite common with um compartment syndrome which is what i had mm. um it it starts to feel like wood literally it feels like wood your arm feels like wood and i lost um, most of the feeling in my right hand um the color uh, drained completely from my right hand. It had become grey um, and I, I just wasn't able to move it. I uh, continued to ask nurses and, and any medical staff around, look, something's going wrong, please help me, please take this band off. I knew the band was causing a big problem. Um, 
And the more I asked, the more I was considered to be um, a nuisance, basically. So then it, it reached a point after three and a half, nearly four hours, I, I just, everybody else from the recovery suite had gone. I was all on my own. N- no one was listening to me. And and I knew instinctively, I knew something was becoming exceptionally serious. So I said, okay, uh, um, no one will listen to me. I need to get this band off. And I didn't know how to get it off. It's uh, a sealed band, air sealed. Mm. So I, <laughs> somewhere in the the drug befuddled state and pain and everything. I, I thought there's, I was in Denmark here, I was at King's College Hospital, so I knew where I was. And I thought there's a small shop near here. I can go and get a pair of scissors, buy a pair of scissors and cut this thing off because no one will listen to me. So I literally pulled all of the heart wires and the drips and things out of my arms, stood up and tried to commit the great escape. <laughs> the kind of thing you see in a movie. Yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That very, yeah. Bad movie. But, you know. Wow. Yeah. Um, I got about 20 feet up the corridor before I sort of started to slide down a wall. Um, and at that point, then the medical staff wanted to know that I was surrounded by medical staff trying to stop me leaving and, um, it, you know, telling me that the only way they could look after me was by me going back to the ward where they'd ignored me for the last four hours. Mm. So um, anyway, I went back to the ward. Um, and at that point, the the registrar, registrar who had um, done the angiogram <clears throat> realised something was going very, very badly wrong. But And then he made his his second and and probably most stupid mistake in rather than admitting that I had um, compartment syndrome and treating it as per the rules laid down by uh, the health trusts, he he tried to mitigate the situation with really quite stupid means. He tried to massage the blood out of the arm, which made it much, much worse and much, much more painful. He tried to... Um, encapsulate it in ice, which was the wrong thing to do as well. And it, all, all things that kind of sound reasonable, but when afterwards, when you start to read the NSH prescribed rules for this kind of situation, he was he was not being a very clever doctor at all. So um, th- this went on and on and on with all kinds of half measures to try and do this what should have happened was that they should have immediately contacted a vascular surgeon and taken his opinion. The In the NHS rules, um, if compartment syndrome is suspected, you have to be in theatre in 40 minutes. Those are the rules. Um, I eventually waited 10 hours. So it had become um, extremely serious. Um, eventually... I, I was losing patience. Obviously, I was in an immense amount of pain. I'd had an immense amount of drugs, um, pharmaceutical drugs, obviously morphine and, and diazepam and all kinds of things. Um, and I, I wasn't trusting anybody and I wasn't feeling very safe and um, and I was very scared. I couldn't feel my hand at all. It wouldn't work. My arm was by then just virtually purple and swollen 
um, eventually they bought at eight o'clock in the evening. So the angiogram happened at 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, uh, sorry, 10.30 in the morning. And the they eventually brought in a, a vascular surgeon at just gone eight o'clock that evening. So by then it was, it, it was a really bad situation. Um, he was a young chap. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Uh, very, very clever boy. And he, he basically, they have to do a pressure test in your arm where they insert a needle to measure the pressure in there for the compartment syndrome. And he just looked at my arm and he said, I don't put a needle in there. Your skin will just split. It's too tight now. So it was, it was a very severe case, I suppose. Um, so he said, look, I don't think I can save your hand, but if I don't get you in the theater in the next 20 minutes, then you will lose your arm. So we'll have to amputate. So literally within a minute of him saying that I was on a trolley and being, and I mean literally run down corridors to a theater. Um, and when I went, out with the anaesthetic at that point, I, I, th I was under the impression that I wouldn't have a hand, but I might have my arm. So it wow. was, yeah. So um, a difficult I've, situation. I, I've I've read your story. <laughs> I haven't heard your story. You do it so much better than it's written down. I've got to say. Um, so all this whole series of catastrophic blunders, I mean, and we're talking King's College Hospital here. We're not talking about, you know, yes, a, yes. a local A&E. Um, uh, well, well, King's College Hospital has, doesn't have, from my perspective, a, a deserved reputation. No, no admittedly, <laughs> but I, I suppose a lot of people, um, and, and I suppose my point here is that most people would feel quite safe in that environment, you know, just by perhaps their own understanding of a reputation. Your experience, of course, now is very different. Yes. But whether whether you feel that the hospital has a deserved reputation or not, the fact is that you put your trust in someone, and I suppose there's a million analogies here, business, life in general, and there you are 10 hours later really kind of faced, you know, facing almost your, your to some degree, you're probably your own mortality because even though, you know, the loss of a hand or an arm isn't, isn't death, I can only it begin to, yeah, I can only begin to imagine, Tony, what you must have gone through emotionally. And um, it's, it, it, you kind of have to put it into a, a, a whole more perspective. And that, uh, that was the point I was going to make. And then if you add the perspective, which is your craft, your trade, everything you've ever known, it kind of is as close to it's even, death it's as, even, as, it, as it can be. It's even bigger than that because you, we, we, it, when you're told you're having a heart attack, that's 50-50 mortality already. And then you're told it's a serious heart attack and now you've got to have heart operations. You know, you, you, that's the way it's put to you. Mm. You go, oh, Christ, this is getting worse. And then you end up 10 hours later with a young man saying, look, I don't think I can save your hand. Um, I might be able to save your arm. Mm. You the the... the by the time it had, it, it had reached that situation, it, it's it's a multiplication of everything, mm. and you begin to understand that doctors are are the same as anybody else. They're only a craftsman, a body craftsman. 
So I'm a craftsman. So I, I compare doctors to that craftsmanship. And and I have to say, King's College Hospital is, is lacking in a big way. Possibly not from the physical surgery, because I ha- again, I will... Uh, I'm very extremely honest about this. The the vascular surgeon was very, very, very good, both intellectually, thoughtfully, and surgically. Mm. But other doctors, the, the problem with is that in my generation, especially, was brought up to believe that doctors were gods, and. As my sister, whose husband is a very eminent doctor, would say, you know, the difference between God and a doctor is God knows he's not a doctor. (laughs) Very well put. Very well put. You know, I I can completely understand why you would be very bitter about this whole experience. But what I'm really interested in, Tony, is because here we are now and we are staring at this magnificent piece of, I mean, art is so many different things. And uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you will see uh, what we're talking about. So here we are now, just a few years on from probably a place in your life where it was all over. I mean, wasn't it really? Catastrophic, yeah. But here we are looking at something like this. What on earth happened? And I say that with, you know, with the greatest of respect in terms of something must have been a transition. There must have been a moment where you climbed out of, you know, that self-pity and that moment of despair and you thought, yeah. you know, I've got to do something. How, how did that happen? How did you do it? I, I don't know, really. Um, from the, the, the surgery was, it was extensive. Um, I believe you've seen photographs of, mm. of, of some of it. And, and that's the, that is quite a scar. You know, yeah. It's what, 13 inches, the, the, the entire length of the internal forearm. Um, that left me with, with not much more than a claw for, for two or three years, the amount of nerve damage, muscle damage, um, and also when, you've, when you have to have surgery for compartment syndrome, they have to cut the myelin sheaths on the muscles, which can never heal, and, and so the muscles start. Um, welding together effectively and all kinds of weird stuff happens mm. physically. Mm. So I had really um, a, a folded claw for a couple of years um, and the nerve damage left me with something called um, CRPS, which is chronic regional pain syndrome, which is um, a, a devil of um, a devil of a problem to deal with. And for two years, I... I the NHS within South London had, I was obviously suing them legally mm-hmm. and you have to notify them that you're suing them. So they knew. So treatment became extremely difficult. Um, I ended up having to go to Bath, um, Somerset to um, get treatment in the end for the CRPS. Um, that's the center of excellence for CRPS in Europe anyway. Um, uh, so everything was extremely difficult. The NHS, when it's made a big mistake and it knows it's going to get sued, instead of turning around somebody from the NHS, turning around and saying, look, Tony, we're really sorry. We, we, we absolutely cocked up here. Um, let's get you sorted out. 
Instead of doing that, they turn on you completely because you're suing them. So they don't want to help you in any, in any way, in any form. You know, I, I also had PTSD, which I didn't realise I had, but, you know, I, I definitely did. Um, so I spent a couple of years um, pretty disabled physically, um, pretty disabled mentally, and ha- had indeed um, given up to a large extent. Pain was so intense that I was on, you know, huge quantities of medication, morphine, pregabalin, which is an absolute killer of a drug. No one should ever take that, or tiny amounts. Um, But they really just tried to keep me quiet just by giving me as many painkillers as I was willing to take. And it got to a point where... I hit complete rock bottom. I started to get a lot of tremors, um, which looked very similar to Parkinson's. Uh, again, nerve damage, CRPS, nerve damage. Mm. Um, and this young man marched into my flat and said, Dad, come on, you've got to try. So. And that's exactly what you did? Yeah. Took a long time. It, it, you know, I had to learn. My hand wouldn't work at all, really. Um, so I had to learn how to use it. Um, I l- learned from the guys at Bath who deal with this. Um, there's a very clever lady down there, a professor of nursing, who who teaches you all kinds of intellectual tricks to to help your brain overcome the mixed messages of pain and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then literally slowly starting with silly things, coffee cups, trying to pick up coffee cups, holding coffee cups, trying to get them in the right position to be able to drink from them, being able to support the weight for um, periods of time. Mm. And then um, just literally every single day, just work and work and work and work and work slowly slowly learning how to cope with the pain um the pain is 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 still there and and is the hardest thing to cope with intense pain is something that i would never have believed was so pervasive to to every pore Mm. of your body every thought in your head you know Mm. It's it's a it's a tough one to deal with. So this young man who we'll bring in now very briefly. Now I he's he's rolled his eyes at me, uh, but I but I feel obliged because this is this is the this is the young man who kind of metaphorically drags you up out of your seat and says, right, come on, literally, Dad, my bed, yes. And and now what we've got is Bellingham and Bellingham, yeah. which must make you extremely proud, I guess. Immensely, unbelievably. Um, so partners in business. Yeah. Kind of gone full circle on that one, which is terrific. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask the obvious question, Matthew. Clearly very proud of Dad, but it sounds to me as if he's pretty proud of you as well because that relationship has blossomed ever since that conversation took place, albeit brief. But, you know, is it is it good working with your dad? I'm asking yeah, a question I mean, it, on behalf of my son because he's kind of got his eye on working with me, so... Yeah, it, it certainly has its challenges, but, yeah, no, it's, it's great. He's a... Uh, we spark off each other extremely well, especially from a design point of view, yeah. an imaginative point of view. He's he's going to be better than I am, that's for sure. Wow, that's so, 
That's quite a compliment. It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true as well. Well, good luck to both of you in, in all of you do there. Thank um, you. The, the journey that you've been on, yeah. lots of people find themselves in very, very difficult situations in life, Tony. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who is possibly facing uh, similar challenges? And we all have different ones. Um, whether it's, you know, mental health, whether it's physical health, whether it's sure. bereavement, um, the, the collapse of a business, financial problems. Um, all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. How do you, apart from having a good support network and, and maybe that person who literally drags you up to your feet and says, right, come on, we're going to gonna give this a go. What, what process did you go through mentally, physically, to get you to where you are today, which yep. has us looking at this incredible Back to making art. these pieces of art, yeah. Um, was there a process that you went through? Was there a, was it, was it self-reflection? Was there a sudden epiphany uh, for, as, the, as a result of a conversation that you had with Matthew? Was it just that moment of realisation where you thought, well, I've got two choices here, either stay where I am and feel pretty rotten for the rest of my life, or I feel less rotten and... It's a, that's a hard question to answer, really. Um, the, he, he, I, I was quite a late father, so I had my first son at 36. It's quite late in this, in, you know, in my era anyway. Um, so I was quite a, an old man, 58, 59, and, and Matthew's 20 years old, you know, 21 years old. Mm. Um, and yes, I had given up. I, I thought, well, this is it. I, I can't do what I love most art. Um, I can't coach boxing anymore because I can't hold pads. I can't physically, I can't do anything. Um, so give up. And, and Matthew just said, you know, you've got to try. Mm. And you, you, you're, I think your children are your best inspiration for anybody. You know, I can't. Be best things I've ever made of my children. You know, you, you, the art doesn't come close. Mm. So, um, that was that was the the key that, that that pushed me forward. You know, I was in a very dark place at the time, and and um, yeah, you, the pain. You, you. I, I'd really like to say this for for all the other CRPS sufferers out there. CRPS is a very strange thing. It. it uh, I have a scar. To, uh, uh, a very big scar mm. to show how it happened. But right now, I, you, you don't understand how much burning I'm feeling in, in which is a, a, a one of the mm. parts of CRPS is the hardest thing to escape is that intense pain in intense pain is unbelievably debilitating. Mm. It's it it, 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 it literally, there are times when, you simply cannot even think. It, it overcomes every every thought process you have. It, it consumes you entirely. And most people who suffer CRPS don't have scars to show. If if I was if I was laying on a, on on a hospital bed in front of you now bleeding, mm. you would tend to have the whole God. That must be painful. Thing. But CRPS is something else to overcome. It's it's a pain that never, ever, 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 
ever stops. And, and exacerbated by virtue of the fact that you have used your your craft is your hands and your... Uh, 100%. Yeah. So you have to... You, you, it's... The, the physical things are, are a matter of training. And, and the way that I ended up looking at that was much the way that I look at training a fighter. First of all, I've got to get his, his lungs working, his oxygen supply, his energy supply going. Mm. Once I've got his energy supply going, I've got to get his muscles going, you know, building strength and speed and all of the other things. And then I've got to get the, the mental aspects of the fight worked out in his head and sharpen him very slowly. It's the same process, really, mm. to, to make the hand work again. You know, pick up a cup until you can hold it properly. Then start picking up a hammer until you can hold that properly. And then start picking up a pair of pliers until you can use them properly. Um, and it's just day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, practice, 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 practice. So I, I sort of equated it to training and treated it like training. I would, I would, I would do hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a day on the things that I couldn't do, the things that were the most frustrating and painful, and et cetera, et cetera, until I slowly um, taught myself to work again and, and and to be able to sculpt. I I did for a while, um, not work so hard on my right hand and learn how to sculpt with my left. So that was. I'm kind of really pleased with that. That, mm. that's, that worked very well. But then at the end of the day, I'm instinctively right-handed. And, and w w when you want to sculpt to the kind of level that you see in front of you here, you know, you, it's, it's, it's very fastidious. So therefore, I just thought, okay, I've got to get back. I've got to get this hand working to that level. Some of the um, debilitating things are, are you, you can overcome better than others. Mm. Um, but if you want to work at that level, yeah, you've just got to train and train and train and train and train and just don't give up yeah. and just don't give up. Well, just before we came on air and we sure. had this conversation, which has been incredible, actually, very humbling. Uh, a comment was made that you are, and it's obvious, you're a very modest, very humble gentleman. Uh, and to use your words, very media shy. You don't come across that way at all. Uh, what you've told us is, um, and I can see, obviously on a podcast, people don't get to see what I see. Clearly, this is still very raw, very emotional for you. Yes, it is. Uh, and this is something I think you accept that you're going to live with for the rest of your life. But yeah. the transformation and what you've achieved in a very short space of time is, it is, as I said during the introduction, Tony, jaw-dropping. I mean, an inspiration to to all of us. Um, has been very, very tough. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely sure. But I think you've told your story in a way that is anything but media shy because it's real. Uh, it's, you're clearly passionate about it. Uh, and it, and it's so truthful. It, it's just, it, it, it's, it is very, very humbling. Uh, it is what it is. Now people have got to see what you two guys have done. Yeah. So let me ask you this. How do people find out about Bellingham and Bellingham or, you know, social media presence, website? Uh, how do we find out about you? Because there's about 45,000 people from 42 countries who no doubt will want to see this stunning piece of art. I, I, I really hope they And do. it's not just art, by the way, is it? Describe what it is. Um, it, from top to bottom. 
Well, uh, okay, so it, if I, it's if not I just des- something to look at, is it? No. If I describe this thing as a, a, a so it's um, a hand-sculpted falcon, a gyre falcon, peregrine, um, approximately uh, half-life size um, or the size of a juvenile um, peregrine. Um, it's hooded in an Arabian style with enamel and diamond set um, decoration on it. It stands on what you would call is a traditional Middle Eastern um, falcon stand. Um, But the falcon stand itself is actually a Bluetooth speaker Mm. uh, um, powered by Bang & Olufsen. So it's a very high quality one as well. It is. It is incredible. It is incredible. (laughs) So how do we, you know, there's a website being put together. Absolutely. So when um, Matthew and I decided to make this and, and, try and launch our company we we obviously we got the falcon made first that shows that i can still do it a bit and um and matthew can now as well um we've putting it a company together at the moment and hopefully we'll be opening a, a small boutique somewhere in um the Marylebone area hopefully um very shortly um but our company is called bellingham and bellingham um, we will be, our website should be live and open in the next 10 days or so, or two weeks. And please come and have a look at our website. Um, not only have we got the the pieces of art that we've just made and the pieces of art that I've made in the past, but we've also got some very modern, very beautiful ranges of jewellery that we're launching at exactly the same time. So it's www.bellingham.com. Com. Well, as soon as you go live with all of that, I'm going to give you another shout out on this podcast to make sure everyone can then seek Thank you, you so out. Much. And uh, given that your hopefully boutique uh, premises will be right by my office, I'll be able to come and see you quite often. That would be absolutely wonderful. And thank you so much. But no, we haven't quite finished, actually. Oh, okay. uh, my final question, just because, um, and, and I think we're a little bit over time, but that's good because uh, people need to hear the story. Uh Given, I don't even know where to start with this one, given all of your experiences in a relatively short space of time and all those emotions and the physical ups and downs and and where you've got to now, with all that experience, Tony, what one bit of advice would you be giving to, and I'm sure you've already given it to Matthew, but to the the public at large, those listening to this podcast, what one bit of advice would you give to those setting out on a path, trying to overcome a challenge or or a problem? Uh, to a greater or lesser extent, it, what kind of one little, those words of wisdom that we all seek from time to time. <laughs> I don't think anyone is better qualified to give oh, advice in a sentence or two than Tony Bellingham. I, it, there is only one thing really, never give up on the dream. That's all there is to it. There's nothing much more. You just can't give up. Theatrical pause right at the end. <laughs> uh, Sorry. What can I say? It, it's been um, it's been incredible. I, I like I said earlier. I've read your story. It's really come to life. So thank you for thank bringing you. it to the hearts and minds of so many people. They will be truly inspired by this. And I've no doubt we're going to get absolutely swamped with emails uh, asking for more and, and possibly a return visit so you, so you can prove to the world that you're not media shy at all. You've got an amazing story. 
Uh, kudos to, to well to both of you. I, I have to thank say, you. thank you. Uh, it is it is truly inspirational. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank you, thank you very much for having us. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was the Sandro Forte podcast. Um, I'm not quite sure what to say. I'm absolutely speechless and that doesn't happen often. There are many more fantastic guests joining me over the coming weeks. So please make sure you subscribe if you want to pick up some great tips on success. And we will, of course, let you know when Tony and Matthew are going live with their business. Remember, you can follow us on social media at Sandro's podcast. Please remember that Sandro's with an S, same on all channels and continue to keep your stories coming, ideas, anecdotes, challenges, or whatever it is that you want to hear more about. Email me, hello at sandrospodcast.com. Till the same time next week. Bye for now.